some kind of love A margarita total Between thought and expression Lies a lifetime Situations Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And what you just heard was Some Kind of Love, right, Bill? From By, by the Velvet Underground from their third album, which uh, included the first song in our top 10 Pop Jesus series, the much-anticipated top 10 series. And this is Jesus. Jesus by the Velvet Underground from their third album entitled The Velvet Underground that was released in uh, the first part of 1969. And uh, this was a number 10 uh, of the most points received in our poll. In our total algorithmic precision. Right. It was an NBC News, Wall Street Journal, Winnipeg poll. This song was way ahead in the polls, way ahead. I mean, it was just winning in like so many polls. So right, many right. people loved it. It's huge. We are actually recording this the day after the New York primary, so we are just overwhelmed with statistics. Yes, we should have played uh, some New York music. To open up. Yeah. Well, a little bit of background on this song. Um, again, <laughs> I, I am uh, talking to you not from experience but from research because – in 1969, I was not part of the art glamour uh, Greenwich Village, Chelsea, New York scene. So I was not hanging around with. Uh, you said that like you're a part of it now. Lou Reed, I am. I go back, the ghost of it. <laughs> but no one's there anymore. They're all dead. So, at any rate, but uh, I was not hanging out with Andy Warhol and Lou Reed and all those guys. So it was such an interesting time. Um, this is from their third album, and it was one of their more critically acclaimed albums. Um, there's been a lot of kind of discussion about where this Jesus song came from. Uh, Lou Reed was a Jew, uh, and though you know the the religious quest was certainly part of his search. I mean, in many ways, the search for mind expansion through drugs and Sex and love and spirituality were kind of all part of that era. We're going to see a lot of songs in our top 10 actually come from that uh, late 60s, early 70s period. And so that's part of what we're going to be observing. What was it about the person of Jesus who, uh, someone who obviously didn't have any kind of religious connection to him, still inspired the song? Yeah, it's, he says in an interview in 1971, the Metropolitan Review, he said his songs... Lou Reed says, his songs were supposed to be little plays. I would see myself as the lead part because I'm a ham. So I'd give myself the lead singer role, and I would write myself out this dialogue. Then I would play different characters. You notice they all have characters which are completely different. And so people used to say, that must be you, or that must be you, but they couldn't figure out how I could be the same person because the people in the songs were different. Sometimes they would be the opposite. For instance, you'd have heroin, and then you'd have the opposite with Jesus. <laughs> well, you know, some interesting things also about this album. Uh, this was the first album without John Cale, so it, it took on a more uh, mainstream might not be the right term, but it, it did take a move to a more melodic, um, if you would, pop folk kind of uh, bent. Um, it also, <laughs> what I thought was funny when I was reading about it, one of the reasons it's more acoustic 
is because all their electric pedals had been stolen recently, so they couldn't do a lot of their funky electric stuff. But on a kind of a more personal note, um, during the recording of this, the writing and recording of this album, uh, he was you know having an affair both with a married woman and with Andy Warhol's um, photographer. So there's a there's a bit of a struggle here to to deal with grace and forgiveness, um, the ambiguity of of his own existence, and of course. His um, you know, drug issues are well known as well. He did take a walk on the wild he side. Did take a walk. Hager. He, he lived on the wild side. So why don't we listen to uh, Jesus by the Velvet Underground, and then we'll have some comments about it.
That's Jesus by Velvet Underground. So what are your initial responses to that song, Scott? I feel very mellow. It is beautiful. It's mellow. I'm very relaxed. <laughs> and uh, it's a natural high right now. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, you know, the first thing that strikes me is, you know, again, uh, as you said, he takes on a role. So this, you know, it doesn't have to be about his own personal experience. I, I heard someone talking about that, how uh, David Bowie would sometimes write music. He would just randomly look like in a dictionary or an encyclopedia and just put random things together. Uh, there wasn't necessarily a higher meaning. Everybody was looking for a higher meaning, but it was just random words that he, he just had to get the song done. <laughs> yeah. Some people write about how, you know, he had, he did have this friendship with Andy Warhol who Andy Warhol had a lifelong kind of interest with his own Catholic roots the guy said, um, Reed showed a lifelong passing interest in his Jewish faith at best. <laughs> right. So it's, yeah, I think it is interesting because it's, it's a beautiful song. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, actually a beautiful prayer of confession. Yeah. You know, in terms of, I mean, it's very simple, very few words. Jesus, help me find my proper place. Uh, help me in my weakness because I'm falling out of grace. And just the, Kind of reputation, you know, the, the repetitiveness of Jesus, like the Jesus prayer. You know, there's, you know, uh, again, I uh, grew up around really strong Jesus piety, and uh, you know, it's it brought me back a little bit to that uh, uh, Bill Gaither's. It was a Bill Gaither, Jesus, Jesus. That you know, it's kind of just a mantra, um, but uh, you know, the simplicity of the melody and and such really, it, it does have a kind of a transcendent character to it yeah absolutely yeah i think it's it yeah the the melody and the lyrics uh go exceptionally well together now tell me what is it do you think i mean you know you and i we are you know when we talk about jesus as such an in-house thing it's both our faith it's our profession it's our you know academic interest as well what what is it about the figure of jesus if you know we can't step out of our own framework but what is it about this figure of Jesus that would that would make a secular Jew who you know is in the midst of really living a very interesting alternative lifestyle and almost in every sense of that word uh that he felt the need to pray or at least he constructed a song where he is asking help from Jesus yeah, and maybe whether it's playful or not, he's able to seemingly get in the mindset of somebody who would have a piety and dependence that centers on Jesus. Yeah. I mean, in some levels, a, a time and place where there was a lot of work being done to erase all boundaries of what love was, what relationships were. Matter of fact, one of the things you may even ask about this album is an exploration of what's the nature of love. In the process of, you know, redrawing the boundaries or eliminating the boundaries, there's this song that stands out and says, well, maybe, maybe in the process of, of, of redrawing the boundaries of what's proper, if there's any boundaries whatsoever, somehow I feel like I've lost my way in this process. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too. One of my favorite 
theologians, and modern theologians, but theologians in general, is Friedrich Schleiermacher. He said that, you know, and some of these claims are, are obviously contested, uh, but he would say that the essence of religion is the feeling of absolute dependence, right? That you're, there's a give and take in every every encounter you have in life where, where there's mutual dependence, you know, and independence. There's a, there's a push and pull, but he says we have these transcendent moments where there is ab- we're, we're absolutely dependent on something, on this feeling of this transcendent reality. It's not dependent on us. We're completely, there's no give and take. There's no push-pull. It's all one way. And he said that, that that's the essence of religion, but it's always, uh, this universal feeling always comes through particular um, instantiation. So it, it's never just general. It's always centered on Buddha or... Uh, in a Quranic experience of God, or for Christians, it's Jesus. And he thought that it's it, what it was is the God consciousness of Jesus. It's this sense that of his communion with the Father that could never be disrupted, even you know in a really bad weekend in Jerusalem. So that, that this kind of nature, and, and that basically when you experience this, that all of the travails of life, you no longer experience as judgment against you. Hmm. That you have a sense of... of God's forgiveness and that divine forgiveness that comes mediated through Jesus enables you enables you to live in the world uh, with natural evils and struggles and not feel as one under judgment. Oh, you know, I think it also works in terms of the idea of us not only receiving grace but giving grace. I had a conversation with a friend recently, and uh, really um, neat person, very bright woman who would be, she would certainly not be, I, I wouldn't identify her as conventionally religious. I mean, she's certainly not a traditional Christian. Um, I, I don't know what her living relationship with God is, but went through a, a very rough spell in the past and was deeply wounded uh, and betrayed. And, you know, I could just, I hadn't talked to this person for a number of years, ran into her and, and, she just looked different. There was this lightness about her. And she described the aha moment as she just woke up one day and decided to forgive. And I mean, it was a very, I mean, she talked in deeply religious terms and that the power of kind of giving grace had, had set her free. And I don't think she would, you know, um, Attribute that to anything trans, you know, transcendent, but uh, it certainly, it certainly gave her a new birth, if you would. It, it, uh, it would, it gave her an opportunity to be born again in, in her own way. And I think that's, you know, that's kind of the other end of what what uh, Schleiermacher is referring to. The, you know, the power of mercy. Yeah, you know, if it's, it also brings me to the fact that uh, you know. Uh, you you know you can the legacy of this certainly goes beyond the late '60s and what was going on in New York. But one of the ironies of you know the the revolution to do away with boundaries is one of the unintended consequences of a more permissive society is also a less gracious society. Yeah, that's true. And um, I find that irony that you know ironic in some levels. You know, one of the great foot soldiers in the sexual revolution, although the sexual revolution really happened in the 20s, not in the 60s, but that's a long, boring sociological discussion. 
But nonetheless, uh, in the midst of his own, um, I'll use a Christian term, even I use disorderedness, he's, he's, he's kind of, he is admitting that he needs to somehow find his way. Yeah. Yeah. Now, why is that? Why do, what do you think is the connection? Uh, I mean, I have my theories, but what do you think the connection between permissiveness and gracelessness is? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, on one level, right, you have to um, – I was talking with my friend recently. I think it was on a podcast, actually, Sarah Condon, uh, who's an Episcopal priest and a great writer. And she was saying that basically when you – there's a kind of theology she sees in her own church, the Episcopal church, that uh, it does away with sin, so then you do away with grace because it's just sort of, I'm okay, you're okay. But then – if everybody's okay, you sort of have to be respectable. There's not really a need for forgiveness. Right. So you get into this, once you lose the capacity for for norms and standards, it's sort of like you also lose the capacity to, in humility and receptive to mercy, I think, say that I didn't meet them. You know, there's this kind right. of, there's the tyranny of, 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 uh, of no sort of, Norms, I think it's 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 it seems liberating, but it often winds up being tyrannical in its own way. Well, you you do have a different kind of tyranny. I mean, I think the Episcopal Church, other mainline churches, are classic examples. They actually do away with the gospel standard, and would you end up elevating policies and procedures, or um, it becomes really important what color of vestment you're wearing and how the altar is organized, not so much what the living presence on that altar is. Yeah. And so I I do think, you know, it, it is. This song is a crying out for grace. It's a crying out for mercy. And um, and at the same time, we need to recognize that um, there is no, there really is no forgiveness of sin where there isn't any recognition of sin. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's a strange thing. that we, It seems like to get away with concepts of sin— and norms and things. It seems like it, it, it will be liberating, but it's often a form of far more <laughs> awful bondage. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, again, I, I think everything is, is a reaction and there's often a, an adjustment to it. But, um, you know, by, by somehow doing away with the idea that I'm guilty of something, um, then I still have the guilt. I mean, I still have something there. We may not call it guilt. And I don't have a clear way of dealing with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's um, nihilism. It, 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 it Sometimes it's only a theoretical possibility. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a high cost to killing God. Yes. And uh, and I think inevitably we we can end up killing our better selves as well. But to me, the power of the song, you know, and again, there's some some discussion whether or not he was just being ironic. Uh, I don't know. It, it really plays as a pretty earnest song to me, uh, the way it's performed, the way it's sung, even in the flow of the of the album. Um, again, you know, it doesn't matter ultimately what what Lou Reed's intent was because you know it's <laughs> once once the text is out there, it has its own life, and uh, we get to hear what we what we want to hear in it. But I I hear if you would, a beautiful, um, poignant reaching out to the cosmos, uh, but giving that reaching out a name. Um, 
the the secular Jew from from uh, uh, the twentieth century New York was reaching out to his kinsmen from the first century of Israel. And when he died on the Monday after he died, Cardinal Gianfranco Ravasi at the time was the Vatican's seventy-one year old culture minister paid his own tribute to the late rocker, tweeting out one of his best-known songs. Uh, uh, Ravasi tweeted out, Oh, perfect day. It's Oh, it's such a perfect day. I'm glad I spent it with you. Oh, such a perfect day. You just keep me hanging on. So He had fans in the Vatican. He did. Well, I want to thank those of you who voted for this song. I have to admit that when you were voting for this song, you converted me, and this was one of my votes as well. So uh, we will be releasing this series periodically. But we will leave you with another, I think, perhaps most beautiful Velvet Underground song of all. Sometimes I feel so sad Sometimes I feel so happy But mostly you just make me mad Baby, you just make me mad Linger on Your pale blue eyes Linger on Your pale blue eyes Thought of you as my mountaintop Thought of you as my peak Thought of you as everything I've had but couldn't keep I've had but couldn't keep Linger on Your pale blue eyes Linger on Your pale blue eyes If I could make the world as pure And strange as what I see I'd put you in the mirror I put in front of me I put in front of me Linger on Thank you.